Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're asking, what is the future of war? It's not an easy question. How do you weigh up the emerging trends and technologies to decide which is going to be the most influential and, of course, which is going to be the biggest threat, whether, say, it's AI, robotics or cyber warfare? Well, to explain all, we have the world's premier futurist in the national security environment, Peter W. Singer. Peter has advised state governments, militaries, Hollywood production companies and developers of games like Call of Duty on what the most important trends in warfare will be. He's also written a new book, Burning, a novel of the real robotic revolution with August Cole, as well as many other New York Times bestsellers on the future of warfare. There really is no one better place to talk us through this. So here he is, Peter W. Singer on the future of war. Hi, Peter. Thanks for taking the time to talk today. How are you doing? We're hanging in there. Uh, Definitely a light at the end of the tunnel feeling compared to certainly where we were a year back. Where are you in the world? Where are you talking to us from? I live in the Washington, D.C. area. So, you know, it's interesting. You and I are speaking exactly one year ago. August Cole and my book, Burnin, came out. And the context of it was interesting is a very mild adjective. Interesting time to release a book. You had everything from the pandemic in its full swing. We were in full lockdown in the United States. Everything from work from home to kids from home to I've got to figure out how to get toilet paper. And it was just the start of the summer of protests over racial justice in the wake of multiple killings. And none of those issues are solved, obviously enough, but what a time to try and push out a new product. You know, the bookstores weren't even open. And so when I say, you know, now I'm vaccinated, obviously not everyone is, but it's in the United States. We just crossed the 50% mark, which is remarkable. We've gotten rid of Donald Trump out of our White House, which is another remarkable thing and allows us all to sleep easier in multiple different ways. So there's a lot going on. I'm having this one year look back moment. So yeah, I hope that gives you a sense of sort of, you know, where we're at. 
Hey, there's optimism. I like it. You got to take it when you get it. My co-author on this, August, says, you know, look, we're people who wrestle with the future. But as writers, and I think this is true particularly for anyone who works on the nonfiction side, why do we do what we do? We do it because we think we can have effect. We certainly don't do it for the money. Um, we teach we write articles, policy papers, again, whether it's in history, whether it's in political science, whatever, we do it because we think by sharing that it will have an effect that target audience will understand a little bit more, take greater actions. And so August describes it, and I'm giving him credit on this, he says, we're optimists staring into the abyss. So there's lots of scary, dangerous trends out there, whether we look at climate change, whether we look at artificial intelligence, where we look at you know shifts in geopolitics. But to do what we do, we have to be optimists of some kind. Well, I've always admired your ability, you and August, of course, to take an issue that perhaps is a little bit more obscure at the time to note that it's going to be an important emerging trend and then to bring that to the public through a fantastic book be that corporate warriors or children at war or wired for war through to ghost fleet and burning and i've got to ask how do you do this how do you note that trend that's going to be important for the future of warfare and mold it into something that can really be digested by not only us as an interested public, but also policymakers that you convince them that it is important? That's a really great question. I'm drawn to topics that are often portrayed as some kind of black swan and unimaginable. And yet to me, they're the equivalent of that gray rhino. It's big, it's obvious, it's staring us in the face. We just don't want to look at it. And it might be not look at it, you know, in the policy parallel would be we don't want to talk about it because it's awkward. It doesn't fit the way we understand how the world works or how we want to talk about the way the world works. My first experience with this was early on in my career. It was actually on a research mission in Bosnia. This, you know, really dates us. And we were looking at whether the ceasefire was going to hold. And one of the key players in this question was a private military company that had previously had advised one of the armies and helped them remake it. This was um, MPRI's work with the Croat army to rebuild one of the armies where you had this loose ceasefire. And the point was, is that there was a company that was at the heart of whether a military was going to build out, whether a ceasefire was going to hold. And it was a company that was acting in the open. Everybody knew about it. But it was acting different than the way we understood the role of companies in war. You know, companies sell goods, not services. Well, here was a company selling services. So it struck me. And then when I started my PhD program and I was asked by a professor, what is something that interests you? And I said, I mentioned this case. And he said, that sounds Hollywood. And I'm like, but it's real. Why do you not want it? And it was because it didn't fit the way. A different example would be the child soldier topic. You know, by the numbers, roughly 10% of the world's combatants were children, and not just, you know, 17 and a half year olds, but all the way down to younger ages. And yet it just didn't fit the way we talked about, thought about war to the case of Wired for War that looked at the emergence of robotics. You know, I had friends that were commanding units, unmanned aerial systems units. You know, they were flying from Nevada 
the plane though was physically over Iraq or Afghanistan. And then I had this disconnect where I remember going to a major conference on the quote, future of warfare, everything from the top academics to four-star generals. And over the course of the two days, not a single person said the word robot or unmanned when talking about the future of war. I'm like, this is crazy. So that to me, I'm always drawn to those topics. It's the same with Ghost Fleet, where when we started it, it seemed quite obvious that you had a resurgent great power competition that loomed. Everybody back then wanted to talk about, you know, small wars, counterinsurgency. Really, like, look, China's rising, but it's a different kind of great power. We need to think about that. To this new book, Burn In, is a look at, again, what I think is an obvious, but we're not giving it its full scope, which is artificial intelligence. We're living through not just an industrial revolution, arguably one of the biggest changes in all of human history. And we don't, I think, appreciate the scope of it and how it affects not just war, but everything, the economy to how you parent. And when we do talk about it, I think because of the effect of science fiction, again, whether we're in political science or popular culture, we want to talk about the killer robots narrative, which is not the big part of the story. The way I joke about it is that, you know, you and I, maybe one day someone is going to have to wrestle with, do we salute or fight our metal masters? But in your and my lifetime, we don't have to decide that. In your and my lifetime, it's what does it mean to live, work, fight, parent through a robotics revolution? How does it affect that? But that part's harder to talk about. It's easier to talk about the mythology of killer robots than this tough question. So those are the sort of the topics that I'm drawn to. What is something that seems like a fairly obvious, big trend, complicated, not easy answers to it, but people don't want to talk about it as much because it doesn't hit their frameworks. And then in turn, I want to reach out to audiences beyond just a limited slice. I've not been drawn to communicating in a language that only a handful of other academics are going to see, let alone understand. That's just not me. I'm PhD trained. I do my years and years of research. To give an example, burn in on AI, we built everything from a Excel spreadsheet with over 3,000 different data points on AI job projections information to interviews with water systems engineers to find out underlying vulnerabilities in cybersecurity. I mean, we did the kind of research that you do for a major nonfiction product, but I don't want to write it in a language that only a handful of other people can read. And I don't want to publish it in an obscure journal article or a book that costs $125 that I'm going to make just my students buy. <laughs> I'm sorry to be like, you know, we all live this, right? I want to try and reach wider audiences with what I think is our important work. Is it fair to say that you also use history as a way in which you can find a broader appeal and understanding? Because if I think back to Wired for War, you take us on a historical journey and those cultural touchstones on the way, whether or not it's Marilyn Monroe being discovered painting early on drones or JFK's older brother, Joe Kennedy, testing drones and dying in the service to protect London from V3 weapons. Is that a device that you use to try and show people 
how this has emerged, but also why it is likely to be important both now and in the future? That's a great question for several reasons. One is I'm personally drawn to history. I grew up spending my time in my grandfather's study reading his old books from his service in World War II. And that created the reference points for me, that experience is, that's even when I can't sleep at night, how do I spend my time at 3 a.m.? It's pulling uh, obscure history Wikipedia pages and losing myself in you know, whatever, uh, best light cruisers of World War I. That's who I am. But more important, I think there's a couple of things at play. The first is the old saying that a lot of people have claimed to have coined first, but you know, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. I do think there's patterns. There is not an exactitude to it, but we do see patterns that you can draw upon for insight. The second is the connection point for people. They are able to understand a new concept by references to the past that they can connect to. It's just like X. And we do that in our own personal lives. Oh, it's just like when I went to, to, oh, it's just like this episode in World War II. It's not like World War II at large, or it's not like the Industrial Revolution exactly, but it's parallel to that. You can visualize it. You can understand it. It allows your brain to bring it in. A third is when we think about certain target audiences. And I do a great deal of work with military audiences. And for them, it's one, it's another way of connecting. You or I'm not in the military, but I work with the military. How do I validate? I connect it to their heritage, their culture. It also, I think, allows people, again, it's this optimist side, even in the darkest periods, it's the idea that you can learn from that. People just like you, including from your own culture and community, went through these similar kinds of questions. These are what they got right. These are what they got wrong. Don't do it. And so it's a way of connecting, but also validating and in many ways kind of giving inspiration. So that's why I love to weave in history, you know, whether it's the personal side to I think there's a utility to it. Well, like you say, you've advised the militaries, you've advised the governments, you've written the books. I think you've even advised on Call of Duty. Is that correct? Yes, I've done various work with Hollywood and video games too. And interesting enough, it was out of a strange warped sense of morality. We make money on the side through the gig economy. When I started it, there was no Uber, so I couldn't drive on the side. But a lot of people in our world do consulting, but they tend to do them for companies that are in the biz. So I found it problematic that someone would, for example, write an op-ed on topic X while also receiving money from a company that makes that jet fighter or whatever. That to me, you know, yeah, you're making your money on the side, but that invalidates your other work. And by contrast, I could work with Hollywood video gaming. I've got my personal opinion on what movies are good or video games are good. But, you know, the fact that I took money from Disney and I say, you know, the Disney channel is great. The reality is like, I've just said I took money from Disney, but I'm not out there writing reviews of Toy Story or whatever. So it was a way to share my experience, engage with some cool creative projects, 
but also, you know, I'll be honest, it was gig work. And so again, I think it's important for people to be a little bit more transparent about this than is common in our space. heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb and my new podcast Not Just the Tudors is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss I also think you may be underselling the worth of it in terms of bringing the broader work to a broader audience as well. People learn through these video games and through these films about the history of war, about the realities of war, but also about the future of war as well. And that's definitely, I think, that the Call of Duty games have done that. I mean, there's some criticisms there as well about war being a game, but there's most certainly brought an interest into some of the realities of war. So there's a couple of things that are within that. One, it created really strange experiences for me where, you know, I'd go out and speak to a defense audience, a paratrooper battalion, and they'd give the introduction and, you know, singers written these books and they're on your professional military reading list. And he's done blah, blah, blah. And then again, he was also an advisor on Call of Duty. And that's when you'd see the head nod. Okay, now we got to listen to him. And I'm like, this is odd, but it is what it is. I had a, let me be very clear, a fantastic experience. You have to be also very clear that those packages are entertainment. That is their goal. That is, you know, what those companies are after and what they are delivering. The choices that are made 
as to what goes into them. If it is a choice between something that is less interesting, less exciting and more exciting, they're always going to go with it. So to give an example in the Call of Duty, I advised them on here's various weapon systems that are going to be used in warfare in the future. Now, they're, of course, going to take the ones that are cooler, I'm putting that in quotation marks for the people that are hearing this, much in the same way people who are playing the World War II games, the vast majority, you know, people are going to choose the cooler weapon system versus the one that most of the soldiers use. Also, there's the joke that if you were doing, you know, the realistic call of duty or whatever it was of war, the World War I version, it would be, okay, now you're going to spend days and days sitting in mud and you might get dysentery and rats are going to run over you. And then the action part is going to be you running out of the trench and you're probably going to die within seven seconds. That's hyper-realistic, not great package of entertainment. Same thing, the opposite, if you were doing, you know, the Afghanistan version much of the time would probably be you at the base camp standing in line for food, or now you've got to write a PowerPoint, let alone let's get into none of them portray the civilian side. One of the interesting things in that space of video gaming is there've been some new changes towards that, some issues on everything from hitting the civilian experience, some of the changes in the zombie games, really interesting that, to obviously all of those games and broader entertainment has had issues with representation that you can see them wrestling with over the last several years. But I just go back to, let's be clear, what's the end state goal? Their goal is entertainment. And so that's how you need to understand the way the sausage is made. And that's the point there, isn't it? That's the important point. You can spark an interest or perhaps obtain an interest in war or the history of war through those games, but then go and read the books, then go and do the research. And that's where you learn the facts. Yes. And... Now, there is an ability to utilize that in a new way. And that's what August and I have been after in this concept that we call useful fiction. So useful fiction is the deliberate melding of nonfiction research and analysis with narrative. So as an example, Burn-In was a multi-year research study on, it was called AI Visualized. It was everything from the history of past industrial revolutions to how does AI work? What are the plans for its applications by entities that range from Amazon to the police department to the Marine Corps to what are the emergent dilemmas and everything from algorithmic bias on the battlefield to face recognition in your home or used by police. Deep dive nonfiction research. But we shared it not through the traditional package of a white paper or a journal article, but through a novel. It's a novel with 27 pages of research endnotes and the rule that every single technology in it, scene in it, is all drawn from the real world research. And here is the footnote to validate it and for you to go learn more about it. And the reason for this blend, this new approach of useful fiction, is that there's three proposition values in narrative. One, research. Now let's get back to our wonk side. Research shows that narrative is a more effective means of conveying new or complex information. If we hook you up to a machine that's reading your brain and you read a white paper, 
two parts of your brain will light up. If you read a narrative, four parts of your brain will light up. The second is narrative is a more effective means of provoking action because it provokes emotion. And as everyone from used car salesmen to politicians know, emotion is what drives a sale. It's not just the facts of the matter. And then the final is with useful fiction, your target audience then does your work for you because people are not only more likely to read narrative, but they're also more likely to share and talk about it with someone else. So, you know, think about the question of, hey, I've got this white paper for you to read. It's 21 pages of great research. And maybe you and I, you know, walks, ooh, that sounds great. Most people, and particularly if your target audience is a senator, a general, or it's the voting public, they're less likely to go, yeah. And I go, no, 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 but it's not just 21 page white paper. Get excited. It's on reform of graduate school education. Ooh, are you ready for that? Instead, what if I take that white paper? I'm not saying don't do the white paper. What if I take that white paper and turn it into a story that takes all of the key issues, the 37 key research points that you had in that white paper, but I share them through the story of a student's journey from graduate school out into the field. In this case, a student that's going through war college, and then they're on an embassy evacuation mission in the future of warfare. But baked into the story is all this good stuff. Which one is an easier sell to a captain in the army, to a four-star general to read? It's the second. What I just said was not a made-up scenario. We've done this with books. That is an example of what we did with the Australian military. They had a 21-page research study on graduate school reform. They commissioned us. We turned it into a narrative. It's called An Eye for a Storm. And that package took the key points, shared it in a new way, reached a much wider audience, so far over 10,000 readers, but even more importantly, hit their target audience, which was among those readers was the head of the entire Australian military to six U.S. four-star generals who are not normally reading academic reform white papers. And so what I'm getting at with this toolkit of useful fiction, it's not a replacement for research. It's not a replacement for white papers and nonfiction. I still write nonfiction books. I still write articles, but it's a way to enhance the impact. If you think about it, to give a different kind of parallel, science fiction, video games, novels, techno thrillers, they're milkshakes. They're pure entertainment and I love them. At the flip side, a journal article, a white paper, a PowerPoint presentation. That is saying to someone, here's your vitamins. Useful fiction is designed to be the equivalent of a smoothie. You hopefully enjoy it, it tastes good, but it's designed to carry the good stuff through. And so that's what we've had these just exciting experiences around. It makes sense. We all love stories and we love to share stories. So perhaps you can take us on a bit of a, a narrative journey ourselves. If I was to put you in a difficult situation and say that you had no choice but to present us with your top three trends in warfare that are going to affect the future of war, where would you start? What would be number three? So... I am obviously passionate and interested. We talked about history, but the technology side of it. So I'm going to answer weaving through the technology, 
Obviously, there's larger trends, you know, the effect that global climate change will have on everything, including as a conflict driver itself. We could speak about great power competition and that shift that it brings. But I'm going to give you, because I'm a tech guy in this, so I'm going to give you sort of the three technologies, overall trends that I think matters the most. And it easily breaks down by bucket area. But I'm going to answer this not by, oh, this is just what Peter Singer thinks. It reflects the research. Because a couple of years back, I was part of a research program that is called Next Tech. And we were trying to answer this question of uh, essentially what is the equivalent to the computer in 1980 or the flying machine back in 1920? What is that equivalent to it? And we did the deep dive journal article gathering and the like. To, we interviewed over 60 subject matter experts who ranged from futurists, you know, and people working at Apple and Google to DARPA and defense contractors, university professors. So the overall conclusion of it was don't focus on a single technology, but rather areas or buckets of technology. And the top three were software, hardware, network, the connection between them. So the software side, it's AI. And we've referenced this earlier. I'm not going out on a limb on saying this is one of two, I believe, the most important tech development in all of human history. We're living through this discourse, which, you know, in history, you can find references to AI. They wouldn't have called it that, but in everything from Greek mythology to ancient Jewish texts to go back 100 years, the advent of science fiction. I mean, it's all around that. It's happening in our world. So first is AI. And again, we can play that out. And what does it mean for the future of jobs to China's entire new military doctrine is built around the concept of it roughly translates as intelligization. So AI related to but different from AI robotics, the hardware side. And here again, every realm of war, we're seeing it introduced. It's interesting just before our discussion I was having another interview and within it, we were referencing some of the lessons of the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan that took place recently. You know, you go back 15 years, the debate was, do drones matter in war? I mean, yeah, they're, I see they're being used in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they're just good for counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. I mean, that was the discussion on it. And only a couple nations, you know, really just the big nations have them. Today, I can't think of a conflict where unmanned systems are not being used. And in almost every conflict, they're being used by both sides. Whether we're looking at Yemen, to Libya, to Syria, to, as I mentioned, Azerbaijan, Armenia, whether it's states or non-state actors. So it's not just that they're being utilized, but one of the interesting things that came out of that conflict is through the very skillful and in some ways different uses of unmanned aerial systems, drones, Azerbaijan took out over just a couple of weeks, if I recall the exact number, it was 47% of Armenia's armored vehicles, its tanks, its infantry fighting vehicles, and over 90% of Armenia's artillery and missile systems. That is a sea change. And so the discussion among the defense thinkers and wonks is no longer 
can drones be used in war? Will they matter in war? Coming out of that conflict, it was, can the tanks still survive in war? Now, Peter Singer doesn't think it's the end of the tank, but there is definitely a big change going on with the hardware. And then finally is the network side, what connects everything. And the two realms of that that matters the most is one, the shift to the Internet of Things, which alters cyber warfare, where you will see digital weaponry not being utilized just to steal secrets, but to stop the physical operations of things in our world. And that's what we played with in the burn-in book. We laid out using research, but through the scenario, 10 different ways that a single actor, not even a nation state, could essentially hold an entire city hostage by going after 10 different internet-connected but physical systems. Basically, they recreate the biblical plagues, but through digital means. People are like, wow, that sounds sci-fi. We've already seen real-world equivalents go after water systems. And we looked at it, and it was a scenario of someone going after the oxidation levels that can turn a river red. In Florida and in Israel, they went after the chlorine levels to poison the water. So one is this physical system attack through the network, And then the second is utilizing the network to change our own perceptions of reality itself. This is the essence of social media weaponization. This is the essence of everything from Russian information warfare to Donald Trump. It's utilizing the web, utilizing the network to alter people's beliefs, their realities, and then cause action. And again, the action might be altering a vote. It might be causing a mass crowd of people who believe a series of overlapping conspiracy theories to literally assault the U.S. Capitol and kill five people, which sounds like an unimaginable, but yet all of those trends were out there in the open, whether it was right-wing extremism, whether it was the conspiracy theory surging, to whether it's someone writing a book that warned of a massive riot on the National Monument Mall in front of Congress. Hint, hint, burn it. Peter, thank you so much for bringing all those themes together. I couldn't think of anyone else that could possibly bring it together so neatly. And I've, I've read the book, I've read Burning, I've reviewed it, I couldn't recommend it more because it really does tie a lot of those strands together in a way that presents our current world as the history and draws together some of those strands to show what's happening now and how that might affect our future. So tell people, where can they buy the book? Well, one, thank you. I really appreciate those kind words, kind review, and to join you. And the great thing about the book is that you can find it through the network and through the power of the tech companies that might be getting a little bit too much power. It's available pretty much everywhere through all the different online platforms, booksellers, to your own local bookstore, which hopefully is now open that you can go physically get a great book to. So again, hopefully people will give it a chance, enjoy it, take that equivalent of the breakfast smoothie, and hopefully through it, they will learn not only about the future that looms, but there's also baked into it these lessons of history, these different episodes that might spark the imagination or the delight of those that enjoy history as well. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.